Today's sponsor is Audible.com, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash decode. Today's episode is also sponsored by SoFi. SoFi finds great people to invest in and then backs them for life. Besides great rate loans, they offer career services and events for every member. Find out more at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the FBI's secret third party who told them to try the password 1234. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair are Dave Gilboa and Neil Blumenthal, the co-CEOs of Warby Parker, the online and offline eyeglass seller. I am actually a consumer of it. Dave and Neil spoke with Recode's senior commerce editor, Jason Del Rey. And before we get to the interview, I want to mention that Jason will be running a conference all about commerce later this year. Code Commerce is May 17th in Las Vegas, Nevada. You can find out more about it at recode.net slash events. Okay, that's enough of me. Here's Jason. Thanks, Kara. I'm here with the co-CEOs of Warby Parker, Neil Blumenthal and Dave Gilboa. And we are in a very awesome and funky studio where we have some demolition going on above us. So... You may hear some noise from time to time, but our great conversation hopefully will mask all of that. What do you guys think of this place? Yeah, a little hammering uh, helps add to the the beat of the conversation, I think. Oh, <laughs> Neil, I like that. Anything from you, Dave? What do you think of the I'm just the impressed here? by the uh, rapping Rodney Dangerfield uh, album cover I'm looking at on the wall. There are a lot of album covers. We have some Bud Light plastic cups, no beer, unfortunately, and we're, we're ready to go. So for our listeners who are youngish and stylish, you probably know Warby Parker relatively well or wear them yourself. For those who aren't, I'll try to do the quick and dirty, and you guys can tell me if I get it right. Good-looking glasses starting at $95 a pop. You can buy them online, but increasingly you can buy them in something called a physical retail store. I believe you guys have about 20 now with 20 more on the way. How'd yeah. I do there? Uh, pretty good. We actually have 27 retail locations now, which is kind of crazy. That is very crazy. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but I have a very important first question, which is sources told me that one of you doesn't need to be wearing glasses. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm, I'm not going to guess. I'm going to ask you, Neil, first. Is it you? So we tried to keep this a secret. Now, it's um, never really been a secret, but the first major press piece that we got after we launched, we were featured in Vogue and GQ, but um, we get this great feature in the New York Times, and everything's awesome. And then the very last sentence is, oh, and Neil doesn't really need glasses. So I was like... Is this really newsworthy? And who got on the phone to yell, try to yell at the reporter? <laughs> you, you were not that big time yet, so you couldn't do that? Right, exactly. We were still, you know, on our hands and knees saying thank you, thank you for, for featuring us. But, you know, it, it's funny that my whole like professional career has been dedicated towards glasses and increasing accessibility to them, um, whereas, yeah, my vision's pretty good. Although increasingly, as because now I get eye exams probably more regularly than the normal person, right. I actually do have a very slight astigmatism. 
but I still don't have any prescription lenses in my glasses. So, so give you a few years. Right, exactly. They're still a great fashion accessory. <laughs> yeah. They are. So uh, It this, makes me look smarter. The selfish reason I ask is I was in college, and I was feeling not as smart as my classmates, and so I popped on a pair of glasses for a few days, quickly was called out <laughs> as a phony, and I haven't put them on since. But now that I know that you do it, maybe... What do you think? I, I, I think it's a great idea. But there's also actually uh, academic research that shows that you're more likely to get a job if you wear glasses during a job interview. So we're going we're gonna to talk a lot about where you're at today, but I want to just back up for a second. The original idea, selling glasses, fashionable glasses at under $100 and doing a lot of it online, seems like you would have run into some resistance. I mean, how many people did you have telling you that this was crazy idea at the start. Yeah, so uh, Neil and I met in business school uh, in 2008, and along with our other two co-founders, Jeff and Andy, we're all classmates and friends um, getting our MBAs at Wharton, and we all had that frustrating experience where we lost a pair of glasses or broke a pair of glasses and couldn't understand why they were so expensive. Except for Neil. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Neil was the one who had spent several years working in the industry running this great nonprofit called Vision Spring and um, knew a lot more about glasses than any of the rest of us. And also just couldn't understand why no one was effectively selling glasses online at that point. Um, Zappos was really big. Diapers.com was big. Amazon was really starting to sell um, every category of consumer products. But less than 1% of eyeglasses were sold online. And it just didn't make sense to us that here was this technology that's been around for 800 years. Products are marked up 10 to 20 times what they cost to manufacture. The experience of buying them is really frustrating. And um, us as consumers, um, we just really wanted to solve our own problems. And we talked to a lot of other people and it seemed like they were also frustrated by the high price and the shopping experience of, of buying glasses. And so we thought there was a pretty interesting opportunity to create a vertically integrated brand where uh, we would design the products that we love, cut out all the middlemen and sell them um, directly to consumers, primarily online. That was the initial idea. And we talked to a lot of people, got a lot of feedback. Almost everyone we talked to said, this is such a good idea. Someone would have done it already. So I would have been the only one telling you this was a terrible (laughs) idea. No, but but, I mean, there was a reason why a lot of people weren't doing it, right? Which is, you know, prescription glasses obviously are something you need to try on. They're something that you wear every single day. And so it's not like buying a CD or at the time a CD or pants or something else, right? So I would assume there was that big barrier to try to convincing some people that this was a business that could start as a digital business. Absolutely. And I I think when you're starting a business, there are all these fits and starts. And there are these moments where you think that you have it all figured out. And then like the next day, right, you feel like you're an utter failure. And we had one of those moments where in surveying and um, having focus groups, we'd literally invite our friends to our apartments and, you know, just grill them about how they bought glasses. And yeah, a lot of people said, hey, I'm never going to buy glasses online because I need to touch and, and, and feel them. I need to try them on, make sure they look good. Um, so given that while we were starting a lifestyle and a fashion brand, we were starting a, a tech company, we thought, oh, there must be a technological solution here. And we found some interesting virtual try-on technology that we were able to license where you could take a photo of yourself and virtually try on glasses. And the next day we thought, oh, we solved this problem. But then we started testing it a bit and even testing it on ourselves and realized, you know what, like this is good, but it's not 
great? Like, will it actually get people over the hurdle to purchase? And that doubt really pushed us to try and think of another solution. Which um, was? Which was our home try-on program where you could select five frames, we ship it to you free of cost, and you have five days to try it on at home. And um, that was a moment that really gave us more confidence to invest more time and money into the idea of Warby Parker. And then, you know, we kept building on the, the business plan because the, the home try-on program actually solved two issues. One was this issue of fit and removing that sort of barrier to purchase. Um, the second was hopefully it would reduce returns um, because uh, one of our core tenets of the business is to treat people the way that they want to be treated um, or the way that we want to be treated. And we loved shopping on Zappos and getting free shipping and free returns. And we knew we were going to be customer-centric and we were going to offer free shipping and free returns. But if we had a return rate of Zappos of, you know, perhaps 40%, right, the business wouldn't be financially viable because while with sneakers you might be able to resell a pair that somebody tried on uh, with glasses because of the prescription lenses, when somebody returns them, uh, we effectively have to trash those lenses because the likelihood that somebody orders the same exact frame with the same prescription in each eye with the same pupillary close distance. To, close to zero. Uh, close to zero. So uh, the idea of the home try-in program was, yeah, it would help people select the right frames for their face. Um, and and enable us to have low return rates. So a lot of people I talk to today, my this is not supposed to be a plug, but my sister wears Warby Parker glasses. She always asks me, especially when I told her I was coming in here to do this, how do they sell them for $95? And how do they send them to me for free and also sell them for $95? And they still look like glasses I'd like to wear. She considers herself fashionable. She would kill me if I said otherwise. So... <laughs> I mean, can you run us through quickly? There's this concept in the e-commerce of cutting out middlemen. It doesn't go a lot deeper than that when people describe it. So explain to us how you're doing this. Yeah, I think um, we operate in a pretty unique category. And this is Dave speaking now for our listeners. Make sure we get everyone knowing who's who. So the eyewear industry is over $100 billion globally, and it's really controlled by a couple large companies. And so most consumers have never heard of a company called Luxottica. Um, I'd been wearing glasses since I was 12 years old. I'd bought a bunch of glasses uh, that were produced by Luxottica brands, but I'd never heard of, of that company. And they uh, really rolled up uh, most of the, the industry. And so um, they Including own, retail stores. Yeah, so right. they own most eyewear-only brands that um, consumers have heard of, Ray-Ban, Oakley, Oliver Peoples, Persol, Arnett. They have exclusive eyewear licenses for most major fashion labels, Chanel, Prada, Dolce Gabbana, DKNY, Ralph Lauren, dozens of others. They own LensCrafter, Sunglass Hut, Pearl Vision, Target Optical, Sears Optical, Macy's Optical. And then they also own iMed. Sounds like a good business. <laughs> it's business. a great business. Uh, they also own iMed, which is the second largest vision insurance plan in, in the U.S. And so consumers don't uh, often realize when they walk into a sunglass hut or a lens crafters, uh, they see 50 different brands of glasses. All those brands are owned by the same company that owns the store that they're standing in, that owns the vision insurance plan they're using to pay for those glasses. And as a result, they're paying 10 to 20 times the cost of manufacturing uh, the glasses that they're buying, really with little value add. And um, as a result of this concentration of power, there's also been a little innovation on the technology side, really very little effort to 
sell glasses effectively online. And that just left a huge opportunity for us to create our own brand and control our own distribution. And so historically, if you wanted to create a brand of, of glasses, um, you would have to get distribution through retailers like LensCrafter, Sunglass Hut, Pearl Vision. Or if you're an eyeglass retailer, you had to carry brands like Ray-Ban, Oakley, Oliver Peoples, Persol. Um, you but, have to play the game with right. the biggest player. But with uh, the adoption of e-commerce, there was an opportunity for us to create our own brand and also sell them directly to consumers and do that in a pretty capital-efficient way. And we recognized that we were trying to change consumer behavior. Most consumers aren't used to buying glasses online, and that just put the onus on us to deliver not just an incrementally better experience, but one that was an order of magnitude better in terms of the value that people were getting uh, for the, the dollars that they were spending and also the experience of um, offering free shipping, free returns, offering home try-ons where people could physically touch and, and feel the product, get feedback from people that they trust, not a salesperson that's trying to upsell them, right. um, offer very simple, transparent pricing. All our uh, frames start at $95, including uh, and still make money. prescription and, lenses. And, and do all of this and still have a business model where you're going to see some black at the bottom of that bottom line and not and not red. Is that currently how the business operates or long-term plans at bigger scale that you can turn a profit? Our unit economics are great. We have strong gross margins, and that's what will enable us to be a highly profitable company in, in the future. And again, to your point about e-commerce uh, can often have deflationary effects on a market or on an industry. It's really for two reasons. One is that right, the internet provides access to information to enable people price compare, but also to enable people to understand the industry dynamics, like to Google Luxottica and understand that the eyewear industry is kind of messed up. <laughs> and, and second, it enables uh, these direct-to-consumer relationships that Dave was mentioning, where we don't wholesale our product to retailers who then have to mark it up when they sell it to customers. So all that retail markup, we just pass on to our customers. And because our industry is also one where most brands are licensed, right, Luxottica and, and other eyewear licensing companies pay, you know, everyday fashion brands like Prada and Dolce Gabbana 10 to 15% of sales, we're Warby Parker, we're our own brand. So that 10 to 15% licensing fee, we're also able to pass on to our customers. We're going to get back to your business in a second. We're going to kick it to Kara, who's going to have a word from our sponsors who help pay for this discussion. Kara? If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries audiobooks in every genre imaginable, business, classics, history, and self-development, just to name a few. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash decode. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today. We'd also like to thank Walker Corporate Law. Are you an entrepreneur or startup looking for legal help with your financing, acquisition, or incorporation? If so, then you should consider checking out Walker Corporate Law. Walker Corporate Law is a different kind of law firm. 
Unlike traditional firms, they only have lawyers with 10 to 25 years of experience, which means that you're going to get personal attention from a senior lawyer, not a junior lawyer getting on-the-job training. They also encourage fixed fees because they believe that when lawyers bill by the hour, it rewards inefficiency. So check them out at walkercorporatelaw.com or you can call the founder, Scott Walker, at 415-979-9999. That's walkercorporatelaw.com or 415-979-9999. Now we're going to hand it back off to Jason Del Rey. Jason? Thanks, Kara. And we're back with Neil Blumenthal and Dave Gilbella, co-CEOs of Warby Parker. When I talk to startups in and around the fashion and retail worlds today, a lot of them come to me and say, you know, that Warby Parker, it seems like they just had a brand overnight. And I know, and the company is now what, six years old? Six years old. And I sense some frustration when I hear this from, <laughs> from some of these startup founders. And so can you help explain? I mean, you, you have a very strong brand. I'm sure awareness, you probably have a long way to go nationally with awareness to where you want to get. But can you explain where the brand name came from and when you think it sort of clicked as something that young professionals in urban centers sort of knew and, and loved? To start, you know, when we were, you know, developing the idea for Warby Parker, we knew we wanted to build a, a brand, and that was a very conscious decision. And, and we want to do that because, well, financially, brands get sort of valued higher than non-brands. Uh, but and, also- that, and, and just so people are listening, when when you say we wanted to build a brand, you meant something that people cared about and wouldn't price compare on, or there was more to it than just good quality at value or? Well, I I think there's a few things. One is versus a traditional retailer that may sell other brands. So if you're selling other brands, you can't be direct to consumer and you can't cut out the middleman that well. So you don't have as much gross margin to play with. You don't have that sort of pricing power ability to lower prices uh, like you do when you're direct to consumer. Um, The second thing about a brand is right one promise or several promises and consistently delivering on that. Um, And we think that brands um, hold a special place in society where brands actually are part of culture and able to influence culture. And we think when we think about what personally motivates us while we love eyewear, we want to build a, a company that scales, that's profitable, that does good in the world and doesn't charge a premium for that. And if we do that, hopefully we can influence the way that other entrepreneurs and executives are running their business. And that is something that we think we're more easily able to do as a brand. Um, so one thing that we haven't talked about that we can talk about in a little bit, but for every pair of glasses we sell, we distribute one to, to someone in need. But when we were thinking about building Warby Parker at, as a brand, there's um, a different threshold for viability when you're in the fashion space, when you're providing not only a fashion accessory, but a health product. And while we subscribe to the notion of building a minimally viable product, minimally viable within the fashion in health realms is much higher than in traditional sort of, you know, software world. So in the tech world, there's this notion that you should get a product out as quickly as possible or rather quickly and get feedback, right? And then iterate and go on and on and on. And you're saying business like prescription glasses, if it doesn't work for someone the first time, you're not winning them back. Is that is that a fair Exactly. Summary? And also uh, just given how important it was to, to gain credibility within the fashion community as designers. And so when we launched, we were able to get these great editorial features in GQ and Vogue that immediately put us on the map. Um, we wouldn't have 
been able to get the attention of those editors if we had sort of a, a beta product that uh, we just wanted to get feedback on and it wasn't polished. That's not to say that uh, we were working in a vacuum. Um, so we spent a year and a half from the time that we um, started talking about the idea to when we launched. And we spent that year and a half really architecting every part of the business model, every part of the brand, spent hours on end debating individual words that were going on the website. And, and we With did get help a lot of an agency at some point. No, we did this all on our own, um, okay. just out of our apartments, and uh, we did get a lot of feedback, but it, it wasn't in the in the public domain. So none of us are technical, and so we actually mocked up our website in PowerPoint, just created a bunch of PowerPoint slides. Since a few of us were ex consultants and bankers, and and uh, spent a lot of time in PowerPoint, and then we printed out those pages and would sit down with our friends or strangers and say, okay, here's the homepage. Imagine your fingers and the mouse, where would you click? Um, they would point somewhere, and then based on um, where their finger was, we'd put another page in front of them and, um, and ask them to click, and that was kind of our first user interface, user experience testing. Um, and so we did get a lot is of that, that a feedback. Common, is that a made-up way to test, or is that common? Uh, I've never heard of anybody else doing it. Yeah, <laughs> 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 but you got you to do what you got to do with the resources you have. <laughs> right. So, that was, so you talk about a year and a half while you're still in school, is that correct? That's right. And then afterward, I thought there was some help with branding from outsiders who helped you all sort of shape the voice and design or is the brand architecture the name is something that we did all ourselves we hired uh, one of my friends from high school's younger brother to help us uh, with the visual identity and then we didn't hire our first external marketing agency until maybe it was a year and a half or after launch. Um, so at that point, we had been working on the brand for like three years. So again, even though it's been six years since we launched Warby Parker, we've really been working at this for about seven and a half years now. And the name is you know, a good example of kind of how deliberate we were about every piece of the branding. And you know, I think a lot of people think that a brand is synonymous with a name and a logo when it, it's really much more than that. It's just a consistent point of view and um, every touch point uh, with the consumer. But uh, with the name, we, it took us six months to come up uh, with a name that um, that we all liked. We still have our spreadsheet of, of 2,000 names that we tested on our friends. Where and were you when, you when you decided on it and what was the final impetus to say this has to be it? Yeah, so we spent a lot of time talking about how what we were creating was a fashion lifestyle brand. Those tend to have proper names. And there were a, a number of other sites that were selling glasses online at the time. Um, they had names like $39glasses.com, iBuyDirect.com, FramesDirect.com. And we wanted our name to be different to glasses, um, perhaps. <laughs> <dot com. laughs> yeah, so uh, you know, we didn't think uh, Gilboa Blumenthal really rolled off the tongue. And so we spent a lot of time talking about authors or artists that represented the brand ideals that we were trying to create. And in particular, spent um, a, a lot of time talking about the Beat Generation writers and Jack Kerouac. And coincidentally, the New York Public Library um, had an exhibit on Jack Kerouac's private diaries. And uh, so went up to the main branch and and he had written about characters with pretty interesting names that never made it into any of his published works. One of them was Warby Pepper. Another was Zag Parker. And those kind of jumped off the page and uh, went back. And uh, Neil, Jeff, Andy, and I were talking about, OK, well, we, we love these names. We're kind of finally getting excited. So we pick one of them um, and decide to, to combine the two and, and make it our own. We're going to take one more quick business break. Kara, why don't you give us a word from our sponsor? 
Thanks, Jason. This episode was brought to you by SoFi. SoFi is transforming the financial world by offering great rates on things like student loan refinancing, personal loans, and mortgages. Their process is pretty simple. They look at your financial potential, and if there's promise, then they back you for life, which means that when you borrow from SoFi, you get an awesome set of perks too. Career services, member happy hours, nationwide networking events, unemployment protection, and even an entrepreneur program. The idea is that SoFi succeeds when their members succeed. So they'll do all they can to help their members out. Learn more about what they can offer at SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media. Kara, that's me. What do you need? That is you. What are you doing here? How did you get to San Francisco? I got on an airplane that you paid for. Well, oh. Jim Bankoff paid for it. All right. Well, now that you're here, let's talk about uh, some recent interviews you've done. We had David Remnick on. We mm-hmm. talked about creating The New Yorker. We had Adrian Warjanowski. Well pronounced. Did I get it right? Yes, we I We talked about I Yahoo. I, got the, I don't want to insult you, but we got the first on-the-record interview with a Yahoo executive in four years. So what did you talk about? Uh, we talked about what it's like to work at Yahoo. We talked about how to create yourself as a internet personnel. Mm-hmm. covering mm-hmm. something called basketball, which right. is a sport. Yes, it's really a sports good. ball. Good. Well, I'm excited to hear the clip. Listen, I get it. It's a competitive business. And when people in this business get beat over and over and over, they've got to explain to their editors why two guys at Yahoo are kicking their ass every day. To hear more of that interview with Adrian and many more, go to iTunes.com slash Recode Media. That's Recode Media with Peter Kafka at iTunes.com slash Recode Media. Back to you, Jason. Thanks, Kara. We're back with the co-CEOs of Warby Parker. And just saying co-CEO brings up a question to me, which is when you think of big, successful companies, the ones I think of right away in the tech world, Amazons, Facebooks, Googles, there's one CEO. Why do you have it this way? And how does that actually work day to day? Yeah, we don't think there's been enough written on sort of shared leadership, but there are some good examples. Uh, Whole Foods is one, uh, for example. But for us, it's just it made sense for us. Um, You know, one, we were friends. We demonstrated success in working together along with Jeff and Andy to craft uh, the brand and launch the business. And it seemed bizarre that one of us would have a subordinate relationship to the other. Um, And we were both sort of filling the need of a CEO, providing vision, providing direction, uh, management, and and overall leadership. And it allows us, number one, to ensure that we're being really thoughtful because if either one of us has an idea, it's got to pass the other sort of sniff test uh, before implementation. Um, And it also, you know, there's probably no better succession planning (laughs) um, in that there's always uh, two of us and we can often divide and conquer and cover more ground. That made me think of who's the first to leave the company. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know. It hasn't happened. (laughs) Okay. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, we just think of ourselves as partners and how does that practically work quickly on a day? I mean, are you a technology guy and you are a marketing guy? How, do, how should I think about the roles or the divisions of the company and how they roll up? So we wanted to make sure that we knew that the two of us could work effectively together, but we wanted to make sure, particularly as the organization grew, that it wasn't confusing to people and we didn't run into a situation where uh, if mom says no, go ask dad uh, kind of thing. And um, and so each of us have uh, departments that roll up into us for our direct reporting. Uh, the one exception is our head of people who uh, reports in, into both of us. And so, you know, for example, technology reports to me, brand management reports to Neil. But if there are any major technology decisions, 
Neil is going to be providing input, helping uh, to make that decision. If there are any major brand decisions, I'm providing input, helping to make that decision. And so um, it allows us to, to divide and, and conquer, but um, it effectively um, operates as a Venn diagram where uh, for kind of major decisions, we're, we're both uh, pretty hands-on and involved. So major decisions made together, is that... Yeah, and we, we spend a lot of time ensuring that we're aligned and, and communicate, you know, several times throughout the day. Um, so for one thing, we sit right next to each other. Um, so when we are at our desk, which is uh, actually not that common, um, we'll just turn to each other and quickly, you know, spend two seconds talking. We often anticipate um, what the other is, is thinking. Um, we have scheduled meetings, just the two of us, uh, on a weekly basis to walk through stuff in, in greater depth. We're often on the phone um, to the point that my wife and Dave's girlfriend uh, make fun of us and are probably a little jealous <laughs> of the amount we talk. So today there's this trend going on in the e-commerce world, at least, where a lot of younger companies are opening up one, maybe two physical locations and saying it's about branding or it's an experiment. What I find through reporting is often for them it's about we feel like we've hit a ceiling online and we're going to try out this thing where, that we maybe five years ago told reporters was not for us or never for us. You now have 27 locations, I think 20 more on the way this year. Is that right? I get it a little bit because it's eyeglasses. Still find it a little counterintuitive sometimes. What, why does that make sense? And have you felt this way all along? Yeah, I think we've always believed um, – and. We have a little bit of jargon internally that, that we typically say where that we are experience focused but medium agnostic. And it's pretty jargony. It, very jargony. Yeah. I'm surprised more so people haven't that. picked it up. Explain that for us. <laughs> it, it means that we exist to provide exceptional customer experiences, whether it's selling a pair of glasses at $95 instead of 500 or ensuring that when somebody's interacting with us that they're having a fun and convenient and easy time shopping. So and is it mar is it marketing or is it is it our stores are highly profitable on a four wall basis they increase awareness they help elevate the brand um, so it just works. So when we think about being medium agnostic when we started 6 years ago right e-commerce was all about desktop e-commerce right now it's all about mobile e-commerce. We were one of the first to sell things on Twitter. So we've gotten into social commerce. Uh, we don't know which what- Which may or may not be which, a thing. Right, exactly. And for us, that's fine, right? If it's not a thing, we've got other mediums to go th through. We just know in a couple years, right, it's not going to be just mobile commerce, right? It might be VR. So we can't be married to a particular mode of selling. And uh, we were never so dogmatic to say no bricks and mortar ever, because it does play a role. And the majority of people buy the majority of products through physical stores. But we're often very responsive to our customers. And what happened is when we launched the business, uh, we were featured in Vogue and GQ. The company took off like a rocket ship. We hit our first year sales targets in four weeks and sorry, in three weeks. I was going to uh, say, I thought that, that story's changed. Right, right. <laughs> sold out of our top 15 styles in four weeks. There we go. <laughs> um, 
and had a wait list of about 20,000 people. Within that period, we had to temporarily suspend our home try-on program because we ran out of inventory. And people started calling up saying, hey, can we try on some of your glasses? You know, Can we come to your office? And at the time, we were working out of my apartment. So as a test, we were like, hey, five people, why don't you come and, and try on glasses? Thereby, if you know the experience was so bad that we ruined our reputation, it would only be with five people. And those first people came in. We laid the glasses on the dining room table. Um, the first person checked out on Dave's laptop just you know, through uh, our website. And we noticed that we could build really special relationships with customers and that there were some customers that wanted to touch and feel the glasses in, in a setting. So when we opened up a proper office, we did so in Manhattan and Union Square, where all the subways are, so it's easily located. We got a loft space with high ceilings with big windows that were southern facing so there was good light and we allocated that part of the office to a showroom and we just learned um, how people want to shop for glasses so at first we had glasses on the on a West Elm table uh, then we built shelves on the wall because people prefer to look at glasses at eye level again something that probably makes a lot of sense to a retailer but didn't make, we had to learn uh, we started to learn that people prefer full length mirrors rather than like head or van Vanity mirrors. Uh, suddenly, we were uh, on track to do a couple million dollars of sales out of the six-floor commercial building, um, out of a two hundred square foot space. So this retail thing is not so bad. You so this right, it's not so bad. We continued to test. We did a, a pop-up store. Uh, we bought an old yellow school bus, ripped out the interior, made a mobile store, and went to fifteen different cities. Um, in each city, we we put the um, which one bus- of you was the lucky driver. <laughs> Neither. Okay. Yeah. Actually, had so, yeah, one of our customer experience associates, uh, this guy Phineas, who ended up being the best driver for <laughs> quite a while. So I spent about an hour last night. Turned out it was fruitless. Trying to dig up a quote that I could have sworn I read years ago. Of one of you saying like retail, not not saying we would never do it, but I remember something making me think that what I see today. I'm very surprised by, and sort of how aggressive you've been. Was there ever a feeling that? You would experiment or you'd just do the showroom thing, but real stores weren't for you? That, might, Did I that quote might be from a, a different company or brand. Because uh, for us, we've always thought of ourselves Maybe as a, a different founder. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think so. I don't think it came from us. We've really al- always thought of ourselves as a brand um, that, as Neil mentioned, exists to deliver a great product and great experiences. And we viewed e-commerce as a very efficient business model that would allow us to launch in a capital-efficient way. So we bootstrapped the business. We were working out of our apartments. Um, we didn't raise any external funding until... Uh, we had been live for 15 months, um, and so we were really scrappy in the early days, and e-commerce um, allowed us to, to really launch. We didn't have uh, the capital um, or the credibility to sign a 10-year lease and, and open a store at, at that time, and so we were able to gain a, a pretty big user base, start generating cash, have customers, and learn along the way. And now we, if you had asked us, Three, four years ago, would we be on track to have 40 to 50 stores at the end of this year? We probably would have said, well, maybe not, but it it wouldn't seem crazy to us. And we just learned along the way. So we opened our first proper store in Soho about a little less than three years ago. And it's around the corner from the Apple store next to Ralph Lauren. It's a beautiful space. And 
we had enough data from our pop-up shops, from our school bus, uh, from our showrooms that we knew that the store wasn't going to lose money. And we were okay if it broke even. We thought there would be just a, a lot of benefit from a branding and marketing perspective. But uh, since that store opened and since every subsequent store has opened, we've just been blown away by the economics and the response we've seen from customers. And and what's been, I think, most interesting to us is that right, customers don't think in channels. They don't think... Uh, channels meaning they don't think, I only buy online, I only buy in a physical it, store. It, exactly. They, they think about Warby Parker and, and they want a consistent and integrated experience. And we're finding that 85% of people that buy in our uh, physical stores have been to our website first, and more and more of our customers that make their first purchase in a retail store are making their next purchase online. And um, starting as a technology company, we've really thought about, okay, how can we build technology that that enhances these cross-channel uh, experiences? And so we built our own uh, custom commerce platform that powers our e-commerce experience, whether you're on desktop, mobile, any device. It's also the same commerce platform that powers our point of sale, which we call our point of everything, uh, which is iPad-based in our stores. Um, so if you've done a home try-on, if you bought a pair of sunglasses from us online, you walk you into one of our stores. And you see everything in one spot. Right, can pull up your customer record. They can provide you with very personalized service. Having that technology plumbing in place allows us to then build applications on top of that. So one example is that we, we found a lot of people were in our stores and they were deciding between a couple uh, different frames. They wanted advice from their husband or wife. They wanted to see how much money they have left in their FlexBend account or they were just in a rush and um, didn't have their prescription information handy. Um, and so they weren't quite ready to check out in the store. And so uh, we said, well, why don't we just use uh, technology where our point of everything is iPad-based. We can just take photos of our customers wearing the different frames. Our associates can quickly select the frames that they're looking at, and it auto-generates this beautifully formatted email um, that once the customer this gets is it, all custom, And this is custom-built. Right. Awesome. Just custom-built. Right. And the last thing before we have to go, unfortunately, is, you know, uh, you're a New York City company. Not sure if we mentioned that. You are. The ecosystem here of young companies sort of looking at, always looks for you know, the big hit and often the way they measure that is a sale or an IPO. Many people have told me when it comes to a liquidity event an IPO is, is what the plan is, but that maybe it's several years out. Is that a fair assessment of where you're at, yeah, Neil? We don't have a plan right now to go public. Um, we believe in sustainable growth, and that's growing aggressively while simultaneously investing in our brand and infrastructure. And you have and a just, lot of investment money. Was exactly. it $100 million last year or so? Yeah. We um, you know, got some good advice from our board that the winds might be changing in the funding environment, and we raised in, in April um, and raised over $100 million then um, and now have just great runway to continue to, to scale Warby Parker um, in a way that delivers exceptional experiences to our brand. Okay, so TBD. Gentlemen, <laughs> exactly. it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jason Del Rey, for that great interview. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with Chamath Pali Hapatia, Dick Koslow, and Ariana Huffington, just to name a few. You can find all those interviews and more at recode.net slash decode. Also, we were nominated for Best Podcast in the 20th Annual Webby Awards, so go to webbyawards.com and vote for Recode Decode. Don't forget to check out recode.net slash events for more information about Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce Conference, which is May 17th in Las Vegas. 
Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference or Peter Kafka's Code Media. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes, featuring candid conversations with leading voices like AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, Goldman Sachs' CIO Marty Chavez, the team behind the hit TV show Empire, Shark Tank investor Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. They're all on Recode Replay.